The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. Good morning. My name is Casey Shaw. I have the joy of serving as pastoral associate here at Parkwood. It's a privilege to be with you this morning. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 29. I invite you to turn there if you have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible near you. You're free to use that. You're free to take it with you if you don't have a Bible. It's on page 973 in that Bible. I want to pray for us and then we'll dive in to the passage this morning. Father, we love you. We come before you humbled and grateful as your people. I pray that you would watch over your word and perform it in our hearts and lives this morning. That as a result of this passage, we would grow in our love for you. We would grow in our love for each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, and we would grow in our love, passion, and urgency to love this world with your gospel and your mercy. So God, give clarity of mind and stir our affections this morning, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. A man by the name of A.J. Jacobs, he's a writer, editor at Esquire magazine. He takes on various writing projects and It's kind of interesting to follow some of his projects because he likes to totally immerse himself into what he's writing about. Uh, He's done several projects of a month. He outsourced his life for a month, which seems really weird, and he did it. He had someone from another country read bedtime stories to his children. He had another man in India argue with his wife. He totally outsourced his life, but one particular project He took on, maybe you wanna check into that, I don't know. He did a project, a year of living biblically, where he sought to obey every single command in the entire scripture. I thought this was fascinating. But one of his conclusions at the end of this, and I'll quote him, he said, I learned that thou shalt pick and choose. And this one I learned because I tried to follow everything in the Bible and I failed miserably, because you can't. You have to pick and choose. And anyone who follows the Bible is going to be picking and choosing. The key is to pick and choose the right parts of the Bible. Now this man is a professing agnostic and he got one thing right. He had a correct realization about himself as a result of trying to keep the law of God. He couldn't do it. He failed miserably. But he was led to an incorrect conclusion of the point of the law, which I pray we will not be led to that conclusion here this morning. The law is not intended to lead us to a point of, well, if I can't keep the law, then I need to pick and choose the parts that I can keep and throw out the parts that I can't. I need to pick and choose the parts of the Bible that I like and are easy to apply and and the parts that are hard I need to throw out. That is not the conclusion that we need to come to when it comes to the law of God. The law of God has purpose for God's people and we'll see that 
this morning. Here's the main idea that Paul is going to get out. The promise is received by faith, not through the keeping of the law. In this passage, Paul is gonna distinguish between the law and the promise. Or you could say it this way, the law and grace. And that's Paul's desire here in this passage. So the first argument that Paul presents is in verse 15 through 18. God's law does not change God's promise. Verse 15, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Now, Paul introduces three new words in this passage, covenant in verses 15 and 17, promise in verses 16, 17, and 18, which was previously mentioned in verse 14, and inheritance in verse 18. These are strong words that Paul introduces into his argument here. He's using these words to communicate that God does not lie. He's not joking here. And his promises are legally binding. That word covenant doesn't weigh on us as heavily as it would at this time, but covenant meaning legally binding. God keeps his promise. And he uses a human illustration in verse 15 to say, no one messes with a man-made covenant. Following the logic of verse 17, which he says, the law came 430 years after the covenant God made with Abraham, but it doesn't change. It's not, rat, it's not annulled as it was made official by God. The law doesn't change the promise of God. How much more will God's covenant with Abraham be preserved if we don't mess with man-made covenants? And then verse 16, Paul says, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, singular, not plural. And Paul says that is ultimately Christ. It's ultimately Jesus. So God makes this big gospel promise to Abraham down the line, to Isaac, to Jacob, and ultimately to Jesus Christ himself. Now the reality is, is that we don't deserve the promises of God, but Jesus absolutely deserves the promise of God. And God's glorious plan for sinners like us is that we get to enjoy God's blessing by simply Believing Jesus, believing. So not only does God's law not change God's promise, God's son rightfully deserves the promise and we get in on it by believing, not earning it. That's Paul's point here. Verse 18, he says, if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Question, what do you do with a promise? You believe it. You honor, honor the one making the promise by believing them, by trusting that they are reliable, they are trustworthy, they are believable. And we can absolutely trust God. Paul's argument here in verses 15 through 18 is that God is a promise keeper. 
And regardless of whether or not he instituted the law 430 years later, it doesn't change the fact that his promise was made to Abraham by grace. And we get in on that through Jesus today. This is good news. And this leads to our next point, that God's law reveals the need for God's grace. There's two questions here that should come to our mind as we're sitting here thinking, why the law then? Why would God make this promise to Abraham and then 430 years later say, do this, don't do that, and institute this law with Moses? Why the law? That's Paul's concern. In verses 19 through 20, he says, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Paul says the law was added because of transgressions. So the law was a side road to God's promise, so to speak. It didn't change God's promise. God merely added it alongside his promise. For what purpose? He says, because of transgressions, or perhaps a better translation would be for the sake of transgressions. So what does that phrase mean? I wanna take us to Romans for a second and try to unpack that idea. The law was added for the sake of transgressions. Turn to Romans 3.20. Let's see two, two primary purposes here. The best commentary on Galatians is Romans. It's just a helpful note in reading through the book of Galatians. As Paul expands further on these ideas in the book of Romans, Romans 3.20, he says this, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So the law reveals the rebellious nature of our hearts. The law reveals, it exposes the invisible nature of our rebellious hearts and makes it visible and clear to us and, and to the outside world. Not only that, the law further arouses the rebellious nature of our hearts. Look at Romans 5, 20 first part of that verse. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. The law came in to increase the trespass. Now that sounds a little bit strange, but the best way I can illustrate this is if you've ever told a kid not to do something and then you see the look in their eyes, it's like, I'm gonna do it. They don't, they may listen to you, but a lot of times you, you see the command arousing the rebellion that's already in their heart. And because you said not to do it, oh, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna do it and I'm gonna take it to the next level. Pastor Jeff used this illustration in the first two services. We could paint this thing this morning, you'd never know it, but if we stuck a sign up here that said, don't touch wet paint, something about that. Just, we'd wanna crawl up here and just touch it, just to see, just to see. The law further arouses the rebellious nature of our hearts. So is the law bad? Is the law a promoter of sin, so to speak? That was the question that arose in Romans as well. Paul says in Romans 7, 7, 
if you flip over there, he asks that question. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. This is a quote, John Stott. The purpose of the law was to lift the lid off man's respectability and disclose what he is really like underneath. Sinful, rebellious, guilty, under the judgment of God and helpless to save himself. The law was given to man in addition to the promise in order to bring about within our hearts and mind an awakened sense of our guilt. The law is not a bad thing. And we, particularly in this culture, in this generation, we wanna shove aside guilt. We don't wanna feel the guilt. And so we look for all sorts of substitutes to deal with our guilt. But the reality is God gave the law to show us our guilt so we could we could get a sense of our guilt, not to be led to despair, not so that we could then pick and choose the parts of the Bible that make us feel happy and throw out the parts of the Bible that make us feel guilty. No, to lead us to God's grace, to our need for God's grace. The law was given back in Galatians verse 19. It was given until the offspring should come until Jesus would come and fulfill the law of God in the place of lawbreakers like us. And then Paul says something really weird in verse 19. To the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Now, most commentators, one commentator said there are 430 interpretations for that verse. He's exaggerating, but the point is this little saying by Paul is very difficult and it's highly debated, but basically I'll give you the gist here. Paul is describing how the law is insubordinate to the promise. God gave the promise to Abraham directly from God to Abraham. God gave the law and you can see this in other passages in the Old Testament, through angels to Moses, to the people. And Paul is describing here how the law is insubordinate to the promise. The promise is the main road of redemptive history. It is the plan of God throughout redemptive history to save sinners by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. And then what God did is added this detour road. It's not another way to God. Where we've gone wrong is we've made the detour another way to God. And what we'll find inevitably is that the detour has a dead end, but the detour, the, the road of the law is meant to lead us to the reality that I need grace. I can't do it myself. God's law reveals our desperate need for the grace of God. Second question that Paul asks is, is the law working against the gospel? Verses 21 and 22, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? 
Certainly not, Paul says, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Only when law and promise, only when works and grace are both regarded as means whereby the sinner obtains salvation can they be viewed as opponents. But as soon as it is understood that the two differ in their objectives, the law aiming to lead the sinner to Christ and his gracious promise, the promise aiming to save us, it becomes clear that the law and grace, the law and promise are not viewed as opponents. Paul's argument here is that if the law's objective was to save, then the law would indeed be contrary to the gospel but that's not the objective of God's law. God's objective in giving the law was never to save, but to imprison us in verse 22, thus revealing our need for God's grace so that he could give his promise by faith in Jesus Christ to the one who believes. We don't get God by keeping the law. We run to him in repentance because we can't, and he is gracious. That's the point of the law. We don't earn the favor of God. We realize through the law that we we can't have it. And God's grace pours into repentant sinners. And furthermore, God's grace defines repentant sinners. That's the last argument I want us to see is that God's grace defines God's people. Paul's gonna break down in this section who we were and then who we are, who we are, who we were first, verses 23 and 24. Now, before faith came, that is before the full, complete, total gospel, finished work of Jesus Christ that we now can look back at the cross and see, before that reality came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Two realities of who we once were, imprisoned. Imprisoned, this is, we were held captive under the law. The picture here is that the law is basically the prison cell bars that communicate to the person imprisoned that there is nothing you can do to escape me. The only way to escape is if someone comes from the outside and lets us free. The good news about Jesus is that he doesn't just come up, unlock the key, open the door and let us roam free. Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly in our, our place and then paid the penalty that we deserve for violating God's commands and bears the wrath of God in our place on the cross and we go free by faith in Jesus Christ. That is the good news of the gospel. Beforehand, we were imprisoned, held captive by the law, but God has sent his son to set us free from our sins. We don't have to earn his favor. Not only that, we were under a guardian. He says that the law was our guardian until Christ came. So the guardian is temporary. Christ has come, but this is an illustration 
from this particular period of time, the guardian would have been someone who the family would have put most likely a slave over the heir of their household. And this would have been a, a relationship, a very, basically the guardian's responsibility was to make sure that the heir was taken care of and didn't kill himself. Do this, don't do this. You get the sense this is a harsh, confining relationship. And that is the picture of the law that we once were under until Christ came. But now, in verse 25, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Let's see who we now are. First thing, we're sons of God. Sons of God, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Tim Keller said of this verse in verse, verse 26, that it's the heart of the Christian life. You are, we can be children of God, sons and daughters of the God who we once were his enemies by our disobedience and rejection of him. We can now be included in the family of God. It's important to note here that not every person is a son of God. There's a condition in this verse. Only those through faith in Christ Jesus are sons of God, are in the family of God. It's a question. Are you a child of God? It's a really good question. Are you in the family? That's Paul's concern here. Are you in the family of God or are you not in the family of God? Are you believing that God saves by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? Are you resting totally in Jesus? This faith is not mere affirmation of facts. Children of God don't merely affirm truths about God. What, what do children of God look like? Verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Paul's not saying in this verse that we have to be baptized to be saved. He's not even talking about the physical act of baptism. He uses it as an illustration. But get the, the picture here. Baptism and putting on. You are, you are immersed in Christ and you have put on Christ. Children of God are totally identifying with the Lord Jesus. There is not one square inch of us that is not drenched in Christ. That's the image he gets here in verse 27. Are you a child of God? Are you trusting in the righteousness of Christ alone to save you from your sin? children of God. Not only that, but as children of God, we are one in Christ. Verse 28, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul's addressing three barriers here, the cultural barrier, the class barrier, and the gender barrier. There's no cultural barriers in the family of God. We need to wrap our minds around that in Gastonia, North Carolina, that there are people in the family of God with radically different political views than you have and radically different cultural convictions than you have. But we are in the family of God by faith in Jesus Christ, not because of our ethnic backgrounds or our race. 
God saves and brings people from all nations, tribes, and tongues into his family. Praise God that his family looks radically different. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but we will be a minority in heaven. That is awesome. God is in the business of saving all kinds of people. There are no barriers in his family. There's no class barriers, neither slave nor free. No rich, no poor, no blue collar, no white collar. None of that matters in the family of God. We don't have to size one another up based off of what job we have. We're children of God. What better title is there? He also mentions the gender barrier. There's neither male nor female. People accuse Christianity of being a male driven religion. It's not. You don't get any privileges because you're a male in the family of God. You don't get any privilege because you're a female in the family of God. We together get God. Now this doesn't mean that Paul is, is throwing out distinctions. There are cultural distinctions in the family of God. There are gender distinctions. Praise God that there are distinctions that God made man in his image, male and female, he created them. Praise God that he did. If it were just a bunch of men in this room, it would be boring. It would. This doesn't mean that there are distinctions. They're just not an issue in the family of God. They're not barriers. The family of God is not like a smoothie where you put in your milk or your water, however you like to make your smoothies in the morning. But every one of you probably puts kale. That's the, the food of the day. You have, you have to have kale in your smoothie. You mix it up and out comes this green sludge. It looks the same. It tastes pretty good. But you can't tell any difference or distinction. That's not how the family of God. The family of God is more like a stew. You throw in your meat and your potatoes and your vegetables and your spices. And you can look in it and smell and you can see the, the different ingredients. You taste it and you can taste how the different ingredients come together and make this awesome savory meal, which sounds pretty good on a morning like this. There's clear distinctions, but there are no barriers in the family of God because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've heard so many people say one of the turnoffs of coming to Christ is, it's not Christ, but it's Christians who claim to be in the family of God. Listen, if the gospel is powerful enough to remove the barrier between us and God, then the gospel is powerful enough to remove any barriers in the family of God. They will know us by our love for each other. The gospel breaks down the barriers that we so often throw up. Lastly, Probably most importantly, we are heirs according to promise. We are sons of God, one in Christ, and heirs according to promise. Verse 29, and if you are Christ, if you belong to Jesus, 
by faith, and you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Now he said in verse 16 that, that God made this promise to Abraham and to his offspring, singular. I love that word, sing, it's a singular word like we use a singular word, family. That we get brought into the family of God solely because of the righteous obedience and sacrificial death of Jesus Christ in our place. We get in on this. We are in the family of God. And here's the great gift of the gospel. It's not stuff, it's not health, it's not wealth, it's God himself. And we as his children get to enjoy with one another forever God. That's what we get. There is nothing greater. There is no greater reward. There is no greater gift. God is the great gift of the gospel. And we get him by clinging to Christ in faith not by earning his favor. So what? Am I held captive by the law, awaiting the promise? Or am I delivered from the law because I have received the promise by faith? Turn with me to Titus chapter three. Paul's gonna kind of expound on what this idea of who we were and who we now are looks like. Titus chapter three, verses three through seven. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. This is what life looks like under the law. There's two roads outside of the gospel. It's either legalism, where you want to earn God's favor and you are seeking God's favor and you are seeking your place in the family of God by trying to earn God's approval, and this is what life looks like. You are enslaved and you are passing your days just frustrated at your inability to perform and envious of other Christians and the seemingly perfect and good life that they may have. Or perhaps you're the captain of your fate and you deny this whole thing. You're described as one led astray and just slave to various passions and pleasures, doing your thing. But there is a better way. Look at what God has done. But when, verse four, Titus three, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of anything we'd done, not because of our works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The fullness of time come, God sent forth his son, and through faith in Jesus Christ, God richly pours out his mercy on us, children of God. 
and his bucket of mercy has no end, never runs out, and it is solely based on his grace, not of anything we've done. This is a quote, and I'll wrap up with this quote. It sums up the entire passage, and it's really easy to remember. John Bunyan wrote this. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. That's the good news of the gospel. It is the great gift that we have through Jesus Christ alone. Let's rest in him today. Let's pray. Father, you are so good to us that we as your enemies could be brought into your family simply by trusting the son that you sent forth to take our place on the cross is too good to be true. But the glory of the gospel is that it is true and that we get to leave this place and live our lives believing and trusting and resting in the best news imaginable that we can enjoy you together forever. Stir our, our affections and our hearts to enjoy and delight and rest in Jesus alone. May we not seek to earn favor with you, but we, may we rest in the fact that we have it solely through the blood of Jesus. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church, located in Gastonia, North Carolina. Please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.